Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 84. We're going to do the whole chapter, but I want to just begin by reading our text, 10 through 12. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Coming in this morning, Dell was back there handing out bulletins, and I said, I'm going to be talking about you this morning. <laughs> and he said, well, he didn't quite know what that meant, <laughs> but he's a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. As we look at this, we're, we're leaving the Psalms of Asaph, and we're beginning the Psalms of the sons of Korah. David, of course, wrote most of them, roughly half of them, but there are other writers here. Solomon, Moses even wrote one. But I want to spend a little time. I had to do a little bit of extra research because there seemed to be a conflict uh, with the sons of Korah, but I have resolved that this morning. So I'll explain that to you as we're getting into this particular psalm. But because there's different writers, it just says here, the sons of Korah on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the chief musician. Let's go back to Korah, where he's first introduced in the Bible. To do so, you need to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 16. The setting is their journeys from Egypt to the promised land. God had called Moses. I'll make a point of it later, but he spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then 40 years in ministry. And I'll come back and I'll tie those strings together later. But it's during this uh, 40 years of wandering that there was this guy named Korah. I'll read the first five verses here. Now Korah, the son of Issar, the, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abram, the son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, they took men. But the ringleader here that I want to point out is Korah. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, and they were men of renown. In other words, they were well-respected men that were there, men of renown. But they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to him, You guys take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, and every one of them, and the Lord is among them. In other words, you're no better than us, Moses. Then why do you exalt yourself above the congregation of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him, the one who he chooses, and he will cause to come near to him. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I want you to just see their attitudes in verse 13. And it says, Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you should act like a prince over us? So there was this attitude of, Moses, who in the world do you think you are anyway? Do you think it's a small thing, this place that's supposed to be of this land flowing with milk and honey? This isn't milk and honey, was their attitude. This is wilderness. You brought us out here to die and You act like you're some sort of prince and ruler over us. Well, Moses was sure of his calling. And so he challenged them. He says, all right. And I'm paraphrasing the rest of the chapter. I will read with the event that happens. He says, you guys come tomorrow morning. Akora, you bring your family. And uh, you 250, you guys come along too. And I want you to stand by your tents. And then the Lord spoke to him and warned those that weren't part of this little coup against Moses just to stay away from Korah and his, and his buddies. And verse 27, it said, so they got away from them around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and um, the rest of them. And he said, look, if, if the Lord doesn't do something abnormal in judging you, then I haven't been sent by the Lord. But if the Lord does a new thing, something he's never done before, then, then know that indeed the Lord has called me. Now let's pick it up from there to the, the judgment itself, picking up in verse 28, where we read, And then Moses said, By this you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own free will. 
If these men die naturally like all men, or if they're visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens up and swallows them up, and all that belongs to them, and they all go down into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. And then it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, the earth opened up its mouth, swallowed them up with their household, and all the men with Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit, the earth closed over them, and they perished from among the congregation. We read here, and one of the things that stumped me, caused me to have to do a little bit of study, is that the Lord required all the family of Korah. And so my understanding by reading this was, well, there's no more Korathites. But when you get to First Chronicles chapter 26, and you can do this on your own, it lays out the division of the families. It talks about their positions, the Korathites and the sons of Asaph, and their responsibility in the temple. So the scriptures teach that there were sons of Korah that were descendants that actually went through generation to generation, and uh, they went from being rebels as they walked with the Lord to being servers and psalmists and writers and this beautiful psalm that we're about to get into. So they basically went from being rebels to worshipers. Can any of you identify with that besides me? I went from being a rebel to a worshiper, you know, especially in my early years, you know. First Corinthians 6 verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But you have been washed, you've been justified by the Lord Jesus. And so these guys have gone through such a radical transformation that all they want to do now is serve the Lord. All they really want to do is anything for Jesus. They're a God at this time. So let's go back to our psalm with, oh, I should mention also in the book of Jude, when it's talking about false teachers and their judgment. There's only one chapter in in Jude. But in verse 11, it says this is part of their judgment, and he's using examples of how not to do it from the Old Testament. He says, Woe unto them, these false teachers, for they have gone in the way of Cain, who hated his brother, ran greedily in air, like Balaam for profit. In other words, he was in it for the money, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So here's Jude, the book right before Revelation, makes mention of this event back in uh, Numbers, that they were false in in what they were doing. Now, let's go back to to the psalm with that much of a little introduction of who are the the sons of Korah. Well, that was their their background. I mean, there's a whole message right there. You could have had messed up parents, and and, uh, they could have screwed up and not brought you up in the right ways. But you know what? There's no excuse for you. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, we make our own decisions doesn't matter what your mom or dad did. It matters what you choose to do now that you got your own free will, and um, I'll just leave that at that. This is such a beautiful psalm, and I want to tell you this morning that I can say before the Lord that my heart longs, let's read verse 1 and 2, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Yeah, I can honestly say that I'd rather be here than anywhere else. I mean that. There's something about being in this place, no matter what's going on on the outside when I come through the doors, it's almost a miraculous thing. Well, all of a sudden we're singing psalms, and all of a sudden whatever I was worried about doesn't seem to be there. It's like the old hymn, Things of this world grow strangely dim. Where? In the light of your glory and your grace. So I can, with an honest heart, tell you, I'd rather be with you guys hanging out here, worshiping, studying God's word. To me, that's where it's at. David said it in Psalm 27. I had the worship team, I asked him to sing the song this morning. One thing have I desired, O Lord, and that will I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Jesus, in wanting to encourage his disciples, we'll read verse 3 and 4 here, uses they, they speak about even the sparrows like to hang around the church. <laughs> even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young 
Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And blessed are those who dwell in your house, that they uh, will still be praising you, Selah. So even the little creatures, you know, they have their own communique with their creator. God has given them unique and special gifts, how they know their uh, migratory roots. And it is an amazing thing, just the wonder of it all. Uh, monarch butterflies, you know, they come from all over North America, but they all end up this time of year down on some mountain in Mexico. Smart butterflies. And they all go out and hang out together in these, in these forests out just west of uh, Mexico City. And then there's ones that, that fly from uh, Canada to Hawaii. You've got you to be tuned in to, to have that sort of a radar system. Specially equipped by their creator, and here making mention of the swallow. Well, I couldn't help but think of Matthew 10 with this. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. As Jesus talked about the sparrows, and one of the reasons it's so important to be in God's house, to have fellowship, is to hear God's word and get exhorted and be reminded just how much the Lord really does love you guys. In chapter 10, I'll pick it up in verse 28. Um, he was warning them because now that they were following him, they're going to take some slack, maybe some corthites, I don't know. He says, but don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And one of them falls to the ground apart, not one of them falls from the ground apart from the Father's will. There's not, we used to, to this day, because of the windows that we have, we always have birds wanting to fly through. Some of them get stunned, and they can get up and fly away, but some of them just don't make it. And I think of this verse, and the one that didn't make it, and his, well, the Father just took notice of that sparrow, because the Bible says he does right here that doesn't fall, that he's not aware of all that's taking place. And then he goes on to say, but the very hairs of your head are still numbered. It's talking about the awareness of our creator, how totally aware of every situation that you're going through to um, how many hairs came out of your brush when you were combing it this morning. (laughs) And he was aware of all that. Do not fear, therefore... For you are of more value than many sparrows. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, it says he counts your tears. In the New Testament, it says he counts your hairs. In Psalm 139, David, thinking about it, says, O Lord, how precious are your thoughts towards me, and how great is the sum of them. He said, if I would number them, they would be more than the sand. Now, that's impossible unless he's been thinking about you for longer than this place has been around, unless he's been thinking and planning out, David says, weren't all my days written out before I even was born? So yes, I take this literal, that his thoughts throughout what we would call eternity, translated into time, would be more. And it's an amazing thing that he, I saw yesterday in a funeral, and it's a, uh, Betty's sister, Joan, I just, she cracked me up because she's so much like Betty. And um, the, I, I think of uh, the diversity of who we are and how amazing it is that God's got this, this much space to work with. From here to here, from here to here, we each have two eyes, two ears, one mouth, so on and so forth. And yet, unless you're identical twins, you've got seven million people that don't look alike. Now try doing that. But then on top of that, you give each one a very unique individual personality. Again, um, I was, we were watching something on TV. They weren't identical twins, but they were being interviewed. And one would start a sentence and the other one would finish it. And I says, this is great because the twin wasn't offended that he was cut off by the other twin. I just got a kick out of watching these guys talk because they were finishing each other's sentences. Usually, if you get interrupted, you know, it ticks you off a little bit. I'm, I'm talking here, <laughs> but not with these twins. What's your point? Well, again, how great is our God 
who can create so many different individuals with so many different personalities. And I saw in a family member how they intertwine between a Joan and a Betty and how similar they were. And so we see here that the Lord is reaffirming that his, his love for you is great. But, you know, we need to be honest and read the rest of this. I could cut it off here, but um, we need to hear this more and more today because it's true, number one. Jesus warned us about it, number two. And that is that because you're doing what you're doing, you're loving God, you're talking about the Lord to your loved ones. Uh, He goes on to say, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So much for universalism. So much for God so loved the world that all are going to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. You have to take it all in account. Then he goes on to say, don't think that I've come to bring peace. Well, what about those angels that appeared at Bethlehem? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Well, that's not exactly what's being said there. It's peace of men who are towards good, uh, goodwill. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. A man's foes will be those of his own household. How? Listen, I grew up with you. I knew you. Now you tell me you're born again and you're a new creation in Christ. Uh -uh Uh-uh, I know, because you're my brother, you're my sister. Well, they can't see what happened inside. And you're going to take your position, I really have accepted Christ. I really am a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. Not buying it. I know you. And so that's what Jesus says right here. Don't think that it can happen mostly in a family. What did Jesus say in his own hometown of Nazareth? He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And they didn't believe on him. He's a carpenter's kid. Don't be special. And he didn't do many, many miracles there. And and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And I'll leave that there. And um, let's go back to the psalm. The sparrows like to have their own association in the courts of the Lord. And blessed is the one who loves to be here, Selah. Now verses five through nine. Blessed is a man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools, and they go forth from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. Going back to verse 6, he talks about what happens when you set your life on a course that we call that narrow road. He says it's difficult and it's narrow. When you make a decision and you realize, I realize what I'm getting myself into. This is not going to be easy. And when you set your heart on a pilgrimage, it says you pass through the valley of Baca. Now, looking that up, in my Bible, uh, there's a cross-reference here, and the term for Baca is weeping. So all of a sudden, you've made this decision. I'm going to follow the Lord. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in the valley of Baca, weeping. And uh, we have a picture of it even in the Old Testament where while they were traveling, they came to the waters of Bara, uh, bitter waters, and they couldn't drink it. And um, yet, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, Moses, you see that tree over there? Go just take it and throw it into the water, and it'll be okay. So Moses does, and that water that was bitter became sweet. That's the idea here. 
Even though you're on the journey, you've left Egypt, you've left the world, you're on the journey, you're going to go through your valley of weeping. There's no getting around it. I mean, that's just the way it is. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? All right. But having said that, you're going to make it a spring, that rain that covers the water. He'll put you in the trial. He'll put you in the weeping. Are you going to trust the Lord? Going to want to go back to Egypt? Going to want to go back to the old ways? Or are you going to look for the piece of wood? I find that interesting. A piece of wood reminds me of a cross. Add the cross to the situation, and the waters that were bitter become sweet. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews and look at a pilgrimage here. I thought Joan did such a good job at explaining about Betty's pilgrimage. That was the, the word that she actually used in, um, in wanting to just do something great for the Lord and be willing to do it, to go out and take what Pastor Chuck would call a venture of faith. Just try it. And don't be afraid to make a mistake. I'm glad uh, Joan told the whole story about going to Ukraine first of all. Well, that's a great step of faith, except that's where the Lord wasn't calling her. And she had to come home, closed door. She gave up? No. And it's okay. It's okay to take a, a, step, a step of faith and not have it happen. Don't be discouraged. Knock again. Try again. And so in the book of Hebrews, what we have for an example, this chapter here in Hebrews 11, our people were to emulate These guys were written down for our learning to live like them. Well, the father of the faith, Abraham, obeyed, verse 8, when he was called out to his place, which he would afterwards receive an inheritance. He had to leave home. He had to begin his pilgrimage. And um, did he always do it right? No. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. He did. Nothing good came out of that trip to Egypt. The only thing that came with it was Hagar. And that caused a problem that exists to this day. And then he lied about it on top of it. His wife was exceptionally good looking. She says, I'm in big trouble. They're going to look at you and the Pharaoh's going to want you, so just say you're my sister. And she did. She submitted to her husband and went along with it. And, um, and uh, then one day, uh, Pharaoh looks out the window and and um, he, sees, uh, he's, he sees Moses sporting with his wife and just filling your own blanks there. He's just teasing her or whatever. He says, that's not your sister. You can get out of town, get out of here. But Hagar came with that. So there was valleys of Baca, big mistake there. But here we see this journey, and as he's journeying um, on his pilgrimage, he sojourned to a country, and tents. And uh, he was waiting, verse 10, for the city which had, whose founder and builder and maker is God. And the idea here is that his real journey was just to be obedient to whatever God was calling him to do, and no place, because he lived in tents, was really ever home. You're not home till you're home. Home is at the end when we finish the race. And that's what's being said here. Um, We read in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promise. But they confessed that they were just strangers in this world and pilgrims. And I love singing this song, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. And whenever uh, days like yesterday come, I'm jealous, I get homesick. Whenever I'm going through a particularly difficult time, I want to go home, I want out. But you know it's all in the Lord's timing. But what I get from Hebrews 11, and as Asaph talks about the pilgrimage, it's important for you to understand and accept that you're going to be in the valley of weeping. And that just goes along with it. Uh, The pilgrim's progress is an allegorical story of the Christian life. And if you've never read it by John Bunyan, next to the Bible, it's the most sold book ever out there. And um, read it because it tells the reality of the Christian life. 
And as we look at Hebrews 11, we, we see that he stepped out in faith, but he had his, his uh, days of Baca. I just want you to know the Lord can turn your Baca. Maybe you're in one of those valleys this morning. Well, he can turn it into living water. He can have streams just gush out of nowhere. And he can make it a satisfying experience. And you can leave your mark, just like Betty left hers. As she went through many years of, of, of Baca, waiting on the Lord for the right timing. Turn with me to John 4, one of my favorite stories, a gal I'd like to meet someday. She's a Samaritan. She was her pre-saved condition. See, everybody has this empty hole in this spot in their heart that they tried to fill with something. Evidently, this Samaritan gal tried to fill the empty spot in her heart with men because she'd been married five times. Now she was just living with a man. And Jesus knew about it. But as I I think about the Lord taking people who are empty and thirsty and uh, wanting to dialogue with them so that that empty void there, he'll create a divine appointment. This is a divine appointment right here. Because in the beginning of it said, uh, we need to go through Samaria. That's not the route. The route was the Jordan Valley. Uh, to get from uh, Nazareth to, you go to Jericho, and then you go up. Like I was talking about yesterday, Jesus was in Jericho. Well, that was the natural route. This is an unnatural route, and the Jews didn't like the Samaritans anyway, and vice versa. But he meets this gal, and he strikes up a conversation with her, and he said, "Um, how about you give me a drink of water? And she says, what are you talking about? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't like each other. And Jesus said, well... Um, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you'd be asking him and he would give you living water. Hmm, he just broke the ice. How did he do it? By opening his mouth and just start talking and see what would happen. Happened to me this week. Over a course of three days, uh, uh, our, our furnace went out and, and uh, we had Niagara Falls for a couple of days and <laughs> I had to bring in these teams of men with 13 blowers and, and uh, huge dehumidifiers. And, and after a couple of days, I got to know one of the guys because he had to come back on a daily basis. And uh, um, he just back, was back offish at first. Uh, he saw, he wanted to know why I had a menorah in my house. That's just a question. And I said, well, why do you ask? He says, well, I'm Jewish. And uh, th- that was pretty much the end of the conversation that day. But I thought about it. I thought, well, what do we got going on here? So it comes back the next day, and I take it a little bit farther, and I, and I, I now begin the dialogue and ask him a little bit about how he was brought up, his bar mitzvah. Are you practicing now? No. No, we left it. Another day comes by. All of a sudden, I find out that he was in, uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Assembly of God. Oh, Really? Jewish Assembly of God? Where's all that coming from? And all of a sudden, we got this dialogue going. Long story short, I don't know the end of the story yet, but he's open to a God of wonders and seeking and finding God. And I said, as a friend, I said, by the way, I like you very much. Do you know why? And he says, no. And I said, because you're a Jew. And I said, uh, in, in Genesis 12, 3, God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. So... Forgive me for being a little selfish. I want to be blessed. And, you know, he thought it was cute and got a kick out of it. But, you know, the wall, my point is the walls were coming down. Well, how does that start? Well, you've got to open your mouth. You've got to be wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And some people have absolutely no tact in witnessing. They have people so turned off in the first 30 seconds that they're not open. This is how it's done, gang, right here. Hey, got a glass of water? No, we don't talk. You're a Jew. I'm a, I'm a Samaritan. Well, you know, actually, if you knew the gift that God could give you, you'd be asking me for water. Oh, really? Well, sir, huh, from Jew to sir, um, uh, give me some of this water that I don't have to come here and draw. You see, the, what's really going on here is an emptiness, and the Lord's just drawing her out. 
And Jesus said, everyone that drinks of this water will thirst again. And that's so true. Fill in the blank. She was trying to fill her hole up in her heart with men. Wasn't working out. Some people, sex, drugs, rock and roll, what, sports, whatever. Fill in the blank. But you drink of that water, you will be thirsty again. And then the Lord says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, the waters that I give him will become in him a fountain of life springing up into everlasting life. She was in a Baca Valley. Uh, She was there at noon. That's the hottest time of the day. You don't get water at noon. At least you don't in Haiti. They go when it's cool in the morning, first thing in the morning. Well, why is she there at noon? Well, she had a reputation. She was that girl in town. That's my guess. I could be wrong on that. But he really has her attention now because her baka weeping is going to be just like Psalm 84 says, it's going to be turned into springs of water all over the place, springing up into everlasting life. He gets her attention by, she has to confess her sin of adultery by living with this guy. And the Lord does that, go call your husband, I don't have one. Oh, that's true, you've had five, and you're living with this guy now in sin. And the point here is very important. He doesn't condone her sin, but he gets her to acknowledge that she is a sinner by making these statements. And here, there is no conversion without repentance. That's just the way it is. There has to be a real conversion, a repentance, before there can be a conversion. So you want to give me an amen in that? You have to acknowledge your sin. And then, the whole idea, and we'll tie this into Psalm 84, is what was really in her heart was a bunch of questions that nobody was ever able to answer for her. Do you know that everybody has questions about God? And it's difficult for people to talk about it because you you don't know what kind of response you're going to get. But now that he's told her things that nobody knew, now she opens up like a flower. And the guys, when you're witnessing, this is what you have to do. When you said she got him on the hook, don't start throwing rocks in the water. You know, a little pull here, a little pull there. And be tactful and wise. Jesus is so wise and drawing her out that now we get to the root of what's really deep down inside of her, which is worship. Where do we worship God? Who is God? And she, and she said, well, you Jews say Jerusalem, and Samaritans, we say Mount Gerizim. Which is it? She wants to know. Now, I love teaching through the Bible over time because I see things I've never seen before, and it happened this week with these verses, which I'm very, very familiar with. But he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and that's what I didn't see before. The hour is coming. It hasn't come yet at this point, and I never saw it. When you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. While Jesus was still there, and I'll come to this in just a bit, the place to worship God was the temple. That's what we're reading in Psalm 84. In your house, O Lord. I'd rather be a doorkeeper there. This is the place that people worship God, in the temple. But the way it's worded here is Jesus is indicating that the hour is coming. Now, right now, it's a temple when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jew, but the hour is coming, and then he says, and now is. In other words, he's arrived. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father, and I like this, is seeking such to worship him. Jesus said, guys, we gotta go to Samaria. What for? Oh, there's a girl up there who's tried everything. She's empty. She's in a baka, weeping valley. And I'm going to go up there, give her some living water. And she got saved. And then she said, and then she got right down to it because she's real suspicious. Who is this guy? And then she, she's wondering, and so she's going her own way ask. She says, you know, 
They're saying that the Messiah is coming who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he's going to be able to tell people everything, just like you're doing to me right now. And then Jesus came right out with it, and he said, I who speak to you am he. What do you think? You think she got saved at that point? Oh, yeah. How do I know? She left her water pots. Interesting. She left what she was doing, and she went out and started witnessing. Hey, come and hear a man that told me all things. Could this not be the Messiah? And so we have um, this process. Let's go back to Psalm 84, which brings us to our text. Now we can get started. Don't worry, we're almost done. Yeah, somebody, I heard that. Somebody said, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Verse 10. And we find here, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. When you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, gang, nothing else satisfies. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, when you've tasted that living water and you've tasted the goodness of God's word, there's just nothing else that compares. really doesn't. Um, For for the uh, the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now, having said that, in Israel, in the... Old Testament, let's turn at this time to Acts chapter 2. Jesus told the woman, the right place to worship is Jerusalem. But how interesting, he says, but the hour is coming and now here when that's not the way it's going to be. I want to talk a little bit this morning about the importance of The church building. All of us know here that you're the church, right? And that uh, you're in a building. But it is is our meeting place. It is what we've chosen. I like how the Lord makes all things new. Maybe some of you newer folks here don't realize that you're sitting in a disco. You know that? (laughs) Many of you don't. know that Luke St. Pierre used to be a, 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 a DJ for the other disco in town. Luke, you're so busted, bro. <laughs> but he's been made new, but he likes this church because it used to be a disco, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'll quit now, bro. I'll let it go. I'm going to let it go at that. <laughs> and he's thinking I helped him so much with that his project this summer. Why is it important to be here? You know, the Lord has taken this building and he made it new. And in, if you're in Acts chapter 2 here, um, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of being here. Where we see in a world today a lot of different attitudes creeping in. One of the attitudes is this. I don't need to go to church. I can uh, live stream. And um, I can go sit out in the field and feel closer to God, so on and so forth. Well, the live stream is there really for people that have a hard time getting to church, maybe during a snowstorm, but especially for those outside of this area here. And I want to address it. The thing that you're not going to get live stream is a fellowship with the person that you're going to go out with this morning and just hang and fellowship and talk a little bit. If you're in Acts chapter 2, we see how God established in the early church. This is the model that we seek to follow in the Calvary Chapel movement. After Acts 2, there was 3,000 people that got saved, and this is what they did. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly, and the Apostles' Doctrine. That's Bible study. And fellowship, you can't do that over the, over the internet. In breaking of bread and in prayers. We have our communion here once a month. 
And then there was this camaraderie that grew because they were with each other. And fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Now all those who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And um, verse 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. Let me just address the home churches, the home fellowships. Well, we don't go to church because we have a home church. Well, the problem with a home church is that the... Um, I'm going to get to that in, in Hebrews here. Uh, we have a home church instead of, uh, instead of um, being in a church building. And do you know that this model, after it was presented here, all the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they went around and they established churches. Antioch, for instance. What did they do? They appointed leadership in the church. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. This second attitude here again is that um, they don't like the idea of authority as it's ordained in the church. And I guess from time to time we just have to talk about it. But here was the attitude that, that some were having in Hebrews. Verse 24 says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Again, in order to do that, you have to be with each other. And then it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but then the next, next verse says, as the manner of some is. In other words, some had the attitude. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to have that fellowship. But here, uh, Paul is correcting that and says no. And then he says, but you need to do it, and you need to do it even more as you see the day approaching. Just turn the page to chapter 13 and verse 17. One of the things that's lacking in its own called uh, home churches is that there really is no leadership or responsibility. Now, it says in verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Now, this puts more pressure on me and less pressure on you. Some people's attitude is it's their responsibility to... um, uh, uh, be responsible for me. But what the Bible teaches is just the opposite. You see, I have to give an account to the Lord, to you. That's what verse 17 is saying. If you turn over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, do I want to go there right now? Yeah, let's go there right now as long as I mentioned it. Ephesians, chapter 4, we read that when Jesus ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit back down. In verse 11, and and then he gave gifts, some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So there's many other gifts, but these are just mentioned here. It says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man in the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Um, it's, It's hard for any pastor to say that we are supposed to receive double honor. I don't like saying that. It humbles me to have to say that. But not because of me. It's because I teach this book that there should be that respect because of the book, not because of the person. I sure hope you're tracking with me on that one because I don't want to have myself appear to be more than I am. I'm no different than you. I'm no better than you. But it is a calling that God has called. And unfortunately, there are the Korahites in the world that have this, well, who do you think you are type attitude. Well, I can't help it. God's called me to be a pastor. And he's called me to teach this book. And with it 
comes the exhortation that says church is important and fellowship is important. And we try to follow the biblical model. Now, in the Old Testament, when Jesus said in John 7, the hour is coming and it hadn't come yet, you were required to go to the temple. I mean, if you were Jewish, you had to go to Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, at the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles. It was required if you were a Jewish man. Now, having said that, you don't have to go to church to be saved. Somebody want to say amen to that? You don't have to go to church to be saved. But I hope you're here this morning because you don't feel like you have to, but it's more like Psalm 84. Oh, I love to be in the house of the Lord. One thing have I desired. I just like hanging with the guys. And I'm here because I want to be. But I want you to know that some people, some denominations, I won't mention any, Roman Catholicism, that says if you're not in church this morning, I I did a lot of work on this. I went through all the lists of what is a mortal sin and what is a venial sin. Four pages. And I found out, depending upon how much you miss, it can either go from venial to mortal. And um, a venial sin, I'm just quoting from their own work right now, are sins that will not condemn you to hell, do not have to be confessed in confessions. It's a good idea to confess them since any venial sin will require time and purgatory. Now, if you lay that on somebody, and um, there is no purgatory, we all know that, right? But if that's all you've been brought up with, and that's all you've been taught, and the Bible says when Jesus died on the cross, it is finished, done. And you can't have works, and you can't have grace. They, they're, they're mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. You're either saved by being works or you're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Okay, well, if you don't go to church as a Roman Catholic, it is a venial sin and you will spend more time in purgatory. Well, that's certainly the opposite of the attitude of the sons of Korah, who said, I want to do this more than anything else. Not because I have to. I quit going to church at the age of 16. Why? Because dad didn't make me go anymore. He said, if you don't want to go, you don't have to go. I didn't. And even when I did go to church when I was 16, as an usher, I could still sneak out, get down to the May, get in one game of pool, and be back in time to usher the people out. Now that's pretty good. And the times when mom and dad weren't there and I said I would go, I'd just go pick up a bulletin. And I was out of there. I don't want to be there. But my goodness, how things have changed. Because when I went through my Baca periods and I tasted how good the Lord is, and I could honestly say before the Lord here this morning, I would rather be here than anywhere else hanging with you guys. I mean that. And I hope you do too. I hope that's your heart. I hope, like in Psalm 84, that's what I desire. I'd rather be a doorkeeper here and, um, than, any, than anywhere else. This equipping is important. There's a lot more that goes on here that that you may not realize. There's a growing process we all go through. And it comes by what Jesus says was his custom to go. When he went to um, Nazareth, it says he went there, which was his custom. In other words, he had a structured life. And part of that structure was being in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Well, God, in equipping who we talked about earlier, Moses, he allowed him to live 40 years at the highest executive level in the world, Egypt at the time, son of Pharaoh, indirectly. He had all the wisdom of Egypt. And then to break him of that, he had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And it took him that long for the Lord to break him And then the last 40 years was that of ministry. And um, um, we see that modeled for us in, in in his life before God really used him. As it is with baby Christians, you come in and you get the milk of the word. Don't require a whole lot of you. Just just sit down and just get fed, take it in, get fat. I like Betty's testimony. She said she got 
just too fat, and she had to get out of the pew and go somewhere and share it. And that, but the idea is that you get equipped. Jesus spent three years with the disciples, and then he sent them out. Well, in closing this morning, I hope it's your heart's cry today. Do you love to meet with God's people? I'm quoting McGee right now. I recognize that you don't, I rec, I recognize that you don't get much fellowship in some churches today. In fact, you might get more gossip and criticism than you get anywhere else. However, the place for fellowship is a church, and there are some wonderful churches throughout our land. I hope there is one in your neighborhood where the word of God is preached and Christ is exalted. I want to make this clear. I don't want to come across by making you think that this place is the only place that has good, good water in this town. It is not. And there's places that love the Lord, are faithful to, the, to uh, teaching his word, and are true brothers and sisters in Christ. Somebody want to give me an amen in that? We are a small part of a big, big picture, and we all need to keep that in perspective. And again, uh, you don't have to be here, but as we read in Psalm 84, I can relate to these guys. Oh, Lord, how love you is your tabernacle and how my soul longs, even faints, just to be here. And I hope this morning as you go out that you'll be able to say, you know, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And we can say, go out with joy. And it's been good to be with God's people and in God's house today. Amen? Leave it at that. Lord, we take so much for granted the love and the fellowship that we do have here. And thank you for the love of the brethren, Lord. But mostly, Lord, we thank you for your work and what you've done in establishing this fellowship. And we're grateful. And Lord, it is good to be in your house this morning, to be able to sing praises to your name, to have the focus and attention not on men, but Lord, that you might receive all the praise and all the glory. And we're just grateful for Psalm 84 that once again reaffirms that it's just a good and natural thing to want to be here. So we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.